chill books original. Moral Letters to Lucilius, or Letters from a Stoic, by Seneca. Letters 8 to 14. Translated by Richard Emkema. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Letter 8 on the Philosopher's Seclusion 1. Do you bid me, you say, shun the throng, and withdraw from men, and be content with my own conscience? Where are the counsels of your school, which order a man to die in the midst of active work? As to the course which I seem to you to be urging on you now and then, my object in shutting myself up and locking the door is to be able to help a greater number. I never spend a day in idleness. I appropriate even a part of the night for study. I do not allow time for sleep, but yield to it when I must. And when my eyes are wearied with waking and ready to fall shut, I keep them at their task. Two, I have withdrawn not only from men, but from affairs, especially from my own affairs. I am working for later generations, writing down some ideas that may be of assistance to them. There are certain wholesome counsels, which may be compared to prescriptions of useful drugs. These I am putting into writing, for I have found them helpful in ministering to my own sores, which, if not wholly cured, have at any rate ceased to spread. 3. I point other men to the right path, which I have found late in life. When we read with wandering, I cry out to them, avoid whatever pleases the throng, avoid the gifts of chance, halt before every good which chance brings to you, in a spirit of doubt and fear. For it is the dumb animals and fish that are deceived by tempting hopes. Do you call these things the gifts of fortune? They are snares. And any man among you who wishes to live a life of safety will avoid, to the utmost of his power, these lime twigs of her favor, by which we mortals, most stretched in this respect also, are deceived. For we think that we hold them in our grasp, but they hold us in theirs. 4. Such a career leads us into precipitous ways, and life on such heights sends in a fall. Moreover, we cannot even stand up against prosperity when she begins to drive us to leeward. Nor can we go down, either, with the ship at least on her course, or once for all. Fortune does not capsize us. She plunges our bows under and dashes us on the rocks. 5. Hold fast, then, to this sound and wholesome rule of life, that you indulge the body only so far as is needful for good health. 
the body should be treated more rigorously, that it may not be disobedient to the mind. Eat merely to relieve your hunger. Drink merely to quench your thirst. Dress merely to keep out the cold. House yourself merely as a protection against personal discomfort. It matters little whether the house be built of turf or of variously colored imported marble. Understand that a man is sheltered just as well by a thatch as by a roof of gold. Despise everything that useless toil creates as an ornament and an object of beauty, and reflect that nothing except the soul is worthy of wonder. For to the soul, if it be great, not as great. 6. When I commune in such terms with myself and with future generations, do you not think that I am doing more good than when I appear as counsel in court, or stamp my seal upon a will, or lend my assistance in the Senate, by word or action, to a candidate? Believe me, those who seem to be busied with nothing are busied with the greater tasks. They are dealing at the same time with things mortal and things immortal. 7. But I must stop and pay my customary contribution to balance this letter. A payment shall not be made from my own property, for I am still conning Epicurus. I read today, in his works, the following sentence. If you would enjoy real freedom, you must be the slave of philosophy. The man who submits and surrenders himself to her is not kept waiting. He is emancipated on the spot, for the very service of philosophy is freedom. 8. It is likely that you will ask me why I quote so many Epicurus's noble words instead of words taken from our own school. But is there any reason why you should regard them as sayings of Epicurus and not common property? How many poets give forth ideas that have been uttered, or may be uttered, by philosophers? I need not touch upon the tragedians and our writers of national drama. For these last are also somewhat serious, and stand halfway between comedy and tragedy. What a quantity of sagacious verses lie buried in the mind. How many of Publius's lines are worthy of being spoken by buskin-clad actors? as well as by wearers of the slipper. 9. I shall quote one verse of his, which concerns philosophy, and particularly that phase of it which we were discussing a moment ago, wherein he says that the gifts of chance are not to be regarded as part of our possessions. Still alien is whatever you have gained by coveting. 10. I recall that you yourself expressed this idea much more happily and concisely. What chance has made yours is not really yours. And a third, spoken by you still more happily, shall not be omitted. The good that could be given can be removed. I shall not charge this up to the expense account, because I have given it to you from your own stock. Farewell. Letter 9. On Philosophy and Friendship 1. 
you desire to know whether Epicurus is right when, in one of his letters, he rebukes those who hold that the wise man is self-sufficient and for that reason does not stand in need of friendships. This is the objection raised by Epicurus against Stilbo and those who believe that the supreme good is a soul which is insensible to feeling. 2. We are bound to meet with a double meaning if we try to express the Greek term lack of feeling summarily, in a single word, rendering it by the Latin word impatientia for it may be understood in the meaning the opposite to that which we wish it to have. What we mean to express is a soul which rejects any sensation of evil. But people will interpret the idea as that of a soul which can endure no evil. Consider, therefore, whether it is not better to say a soul that cannot be harmed or a soul entirely beyond the realm of suffering. 3. There is this difference between ourselves and the other school. Our ideal wise man feels his troubles, but overcomes them. Their wise man does not even feel them, but we and they alike hold this idea, that the wise man is self-sufficient. Nevertheless, he desires friends, neighbors, and associates, no matter how much he is sufficient unto himself. 4. And mark how self-sufficient he is. For on occasion, he can be content with a part of himself. If he lose a hand through disease or war, or if some accident puts out one or both of his eyes, he will be satisfied with what is left, taking as much pleasure in his impaired and maimed body as he took when it was sound. But while he does not pine for these parts if they are missing, he prefers not to lose them. 5. In this sense the wise man is self-sufficient, that he can do without friends, not that he desires to do without them. When I say can, I mean this. He endures the loss of a friend with equanimity, but he need never lack friends, for it lies in his own control how soon he shall make good a loss. Just as Phidias, if he lose a statue, can straightway carve another, even so our master in the art of making friendships can fill the place of a friend he has lost. 6. If you ask how one can make oneself a friend quickly, I will tell you, provided we are agreed that I may pay my debt at once and square the account. So far as this letter is concerned, Hecato says, I can show you a filter compounded without drugs, herbs, or any witch's incantation. If you would be loved, love. Now there is great pleasure, not only in maintaining old and established friendships, but also in beginning and acquiring new ones. 7. There is the same difference between winning a new friend and having already won him, as there is between the farmer who sows and the farmer who reaps. The philosopher Atalus used to say, It is more pleasant to make than to keep a friend, 
as it is more pleasant to the artist to paint than to have finished painting. When one is busy and absorbed in one's work, the very absorption affords great delight. But when one has withdrawn one's hand from the completed masterpiece, the pleasure is not so keen. Henceforth it is the fruits of his art that he enjoys. It was the art itself that he enjoyed while he was painting. In the case of our children, their young manhood yields the more abundant fruits, but their infancy was sweeter. 8. Let us now return to the question. The wise man, I say, self-sufficient though he be, nevertheless desires friends if only for the purpose of practicing friendship, in order that his noble qualities may not lie dormant. Not, however, for the purpose mentioned by Epicurus in the letter quoted above, that there may be someone to sit by him when he is ill, to help him when he is in prison or in want but that he may have someone by whose sick bed he himself may sit, someone a prisoner in hostile hands whom he himself may set free. He who regards himself only and enters upon friendships for this reason reckons wrongly. The end will be like the beginning. He has made friends with one who might assist him out of bondage. At the first rattle of the chain, such a friend will desert him. 9. These are the so-called fair-weather friendships. One who is chosen for the sake of utility will be satisfactory only so long as he is useful. Hence prosperous men are blockaded by troops of friends. But those who have failed stand amid vast loneliness, their friends fleeing from the very crisis which is to test their worth. Hence, also, we notice those many shameful cases of persons who, through fear, desert, or betray, the beginning and the end cannot but harmonize. He who begins to be your friend because it pays will also cease because it pays. A man will be attracted by some reward offered in exchange for his friendship, if he be attracted by aught in friendship other than friendship itself. 10. For what purpose, then, do I make a man my friend, in order to have someone for whom I may die, whom I may follow into exile, against whose death I may stake my own life, and pay the pledge, too? The friendship which you portray is a bargain and not a friendship. It regards convenience only and looks to the results. 11. Beyond question, the feeling of a lover has in it something akin to friendship. One might call it friendship run mad. But, though this is true, does anyone love for the sake of gain, or promotion, or renown? Pure love, careless of all other things, kindles the soul with desire for the beautiful object, not without the hope of a return of the affection. What then? Can a cause which is more honorable produce a passion that is base? 12. You may retort. We are not now discussing the question whether friendship is to be cultivated for its own sake. On the contrary, 
nothing more urgently requires demonstration. For if friendship is to be sought for its own sake, he may seek it who is self-sufficient. How, then, you ask, does he seek it? Precisely as he seeks an object of great beauty, not attracted to it by desire for gain, nor yet frightened by the instability of fortune. One who seeks friendship for favorable occasions strips it of all its nobility. 13. The wise man is self-sufficient. This phrase, my dear Lucilius, is incorrectly explained by many. For they withdraw the wise man from the world and force him to dwell within his own skin. But we must mark with care what this sentence signifies and how far it applies. The wise man is sufficient unto himself for a happy existence, but not for mere existence. For he needs many helps towards mere existence. But for a happy existence, he needs only a sound and upright soul, one that despises fortune. 14. I should like also to state to you one of the distinctions of Chrysippus, who declares that the wise man is in want of nothing, and yet needs many things. On the other hand, he says, nothing is needed by the fool, for he does not understand how to use anything, but he is in want of everything. The wise man needs hands, eyes, and many things that are necessary for his daily use, but he is in want of nothing. For want implies a necessity, and nothing is necessary to the wise man. 15. Therefore, although he is self-sufficient, yet he has need of friends. He craves as many friends as possible, not, however, that he may live happily. For he will live happily even without friends. The supreme good calls for no practical aids from outside. It is developed at home and arises entirely within itself. The good seeks any portion of itself from without. It begins to be subject to the play of fortune. 16. People may say, but what sort of existence will the wise man have? if he be left friendless when thrown into prison, or when stranded in some foreign nation, or when delayed on a long voyage, or when cast upon a lonely shore. His life will be like that of Jupiter, who, amid the dissolution of the world, when the gods are confounded together and nature rests for a space from her work, can retire into himself and give himself over to his own thoughts. In some such way as this the sage will lack. He will retreat into himself and live with himself. 17. As long as he is allowed to order his affairs according to his judgment, he is self-sufficient and marries a wife. He is self-sufficient and brings up children. He is self-sufficient and yet could not live if he had to live without the society of man. Natural promptings, and not his own selfish needs, draw him into friendships. For just as other things have for us an inherent attractiveness, so has friendship. 
as we hate solitude and crave society, as nature draws men to each other. So in this matter also there is an attraction which makes us desirous of friendship. 18. Nevertheless, though the sage may love his friends dearly, often comparing them with himself and putting them ahead of himself, yet all the good will be limited to his own being, and he will speak the words which were spoken by the very still bow whom Epicurus criticizes in his letter. For still bow, after his country was captured and his children and his wife lost, as he emerged from the general desolation alone and yet happy, spoke as follows to Demetrius, called Sacker of Cities because of the destruction he brought upon them, in answer to the question whether he had lost anything. I have all my goods with me. 19. There is a brave and stout-hearted man for you, the enemy conquered but still Bo conquered his conqueror. I have lost nothing. I, he forced Demetrius to wonder whether he himself had conquered after all. My goods are all with me. In other words, he deemed nothing that might be taken from him to be a good. We marvel at certain animals because they can pass through fire and suffer no bodily harm. But how much more marvelous is a man who has marched forth in hurt and unscathed through fire and sword and devastation? Do you understand now how much easier it is to conquer a whole tribe than to conquer one man? The saying of Stillbone makes common ground with Stoicism. The Stoic also can carry his goods unimpaired through cities that have been burned to ashes. For he is self-sufficient. Such are the bounds which he sets to his own happiness. 20. But you must not think that our school alone can utter noble words. Epicurus himself, the reviler of Stilbo, spoke similar language. Put it down to my credit. Though I have already wiped out my debt for the present day, he says, Whoever does not regard what he has as most ample wealth is unhappy, though he be master of the whole world. Or, if the following seems to you a more suitable phrase, for we must try to render the meaning and not the mere words, a man may rule the world and still be unhappy, if he does not feel that he is supremely happy. 21. In order, however, that you may know that these sentiments are universal, suggested, of course, by nature, you will find in one of the comic poets this verse. Unblessed is he who thinks himself unblessed. For what does your condition matter, if it is bad in your own eyes? 22. You may say, what then, if yonder man rich by base means, and yonder man, lord of many but slave of more, shall call themselves happy. Will their own opinion make them happy? It matters not what one says, but what one feels. Also, not how one feels on one particular day, but how one feels at all times. There is no reason, however, why you should fear that this great privilege will fall into unworthy hands. 
Only the wise man is pleased with his own. Folly is ever troubled with weariness of itself. Farewell. Letter 10. On Living to Oneself. 1. Yes, I do not change my opinion. Avoid the many, avoid the few, avoid even the individual. I know of no one with whom I should be willing to have you share, and see what an opinion of you I have. For I dare to trust you with your own self. Crates, they say, the disciple of the very still bow whom I mentioned in a former letter, noticed a young man walking by himself and asked him what he was doing all alone. I am communing with myself, replied the youth. Pray be careful, then said Crates, and take good heed. You are communing with a bad man. Two, when persons are in mourning or fearful about something, we are accustomed to watch them that we may prevent them from making a wrong use of their loneliness. No thoughtless person not to be left alone. In such cases, he only plans folly and heaps up future dangers for himself or for others. He brings into play his base desires. The mind displays what fear or shame used to repress. It wets his boldness, stirs his passions, and goads his anger. And finally, the only benefit that solitude confers, the habit of trusting no man and of fearing no witnesses, is lost to the fool, for he betrays himself. Mark therefore what my hopes are for you, nay, rather, what I am promising myself, inasmuch as hope is merely the title of an uncertain blessing. I do not know any person with whom I should prefer you to associate rather than yourself. 3. I remember in what a great solid way you hurled forth certain phrases, and how full of strength they were. I immediately congratulated myself and said, These words did not come from the edge of the lips. These utterances have a solid foundation. This man is not one of the many. He has regard for his real welfare. 4. Speak and live in this way. See to it that nothing keeps you down. As for your former prayers, you may dispense the gods from answering them. Offer new prayers. Pray for a sound mind and for good health, first of soul and then of body. And of course, you should offer those prayers frequently. Call boldly upon God. You will not be asking him for that which belongs to another. 5. But I must, as is my custom, send the little gift along with this letter. It is a true saying which I have found in Athenodorus. Know that thou art freed from all desires when thou hast reached such a point that thou prayest to God for nothing except what thou canst pray for openly. But how foolish men are now! They whisper the bassest of prayers to heaven. But if anyone listens, they are silent at once. That which they are unwilling for men to know, they communicate to God. 
Do you not think, then, that some such wholesome advice as this could be given you, live among men as if God beheld you? Speak with God as if men were listening. Farewell. Letter 11. On the Blush of Modesty. 1. Your friend and I have had a conversation. He is a man of ability. His very first words show what spirit and understanding he possesses, and what progress he has already made. He gave me a foretaste, and he will not fail to answer thereto. For he spoke not from forethought, but was suddenly caught off his guard when he tried to collect himself. He could scarcely banish that hue of modesty, which is a good sign in a young man. The blush that spread over his face seemed so to rise from the depths, and I feel sure that his habit of blushing will stay with him after he has strengthened his character, stripped off all his faults, and become wise. For by no wisdom can natural weaknesses of the body be removed. That which is implanted and inborn can be toned down by training, but not overcome. 2. The steadiest speaker, when before the public, often breaks into a perspiration, as if he had wearied or overheated himself. Some tremble in the knees when they rise to speak. I know of some whose teeth chatter, whose tongues falter, whose lips quiver. Training and experience can never shake off this habit. Nature exerts her own power and through such a weakness makes her presence known even to the strongest. 3. I know that the blush, too, is a habit of this sort, spreading suddenly over the faces of the most dignified men. It is, indeed, more prevalent in youth because of the warmer blood and the sensitive countenance. Nevertheless, both seasoned men and aged men are affected by it. Some are most dangerous when they read, as if they were letting all their sense of shame escape. 4. Sulla, when the blood mantled his cheeks, was in his fiercest mood. Pompey had the most sensitive cast of countenance. He always blushed in the presence of a gathering, and especially at a public assembly. Fabianus also, I remember, reddened it when he appeared as a witness before the Senate, and his embarrassment became him to a remarkable degree. 5. Such a habit is not due to mental weakness, but to the novelty of a situation and an experienced person is not necessarily confused, but is usually affected because he slips into this habit by natural tendency of the body. Just as certain men are full-blooded, so others are of a quick and mobile blood that rushes to the face at once. 6. As I remarked, wisdom can never remove this habit. For if she could rub out all our faults, she would be mistress of the universe. Whatever is assigned to us by the terms of our birth and the blend in our constitutions will stick with us, no matter how hard or how long the soul may have tried to master itself, 
and we cannot forbid these feelings any more than we can summon them. 7. Actors in the theater, who imitate the emotions, who portray fear and nervousness, who depict sorrow, imitate bashfulness by hanging their heads, lowering their voices, and keeping their eyes fixed and rooted upon the ground. They cannot, however, muster a blush, for the blush cannot be prevented or acquired. Wisdom will not assure us of a remedy or give us help against it. It comes or goes unbidden and is a law unto itself. 8. But my letter calls for its closing sentence. Hear and take to heart this useful and wholesome motto. Cherish some man of high character and keep him ever before your eyes, living as if he were watching you and ordering all your actions as if he beheld them. 9. Such, my dear Lucilius, is the counsel of Epicurus. He has quite properly given us a guardian and an attendant. We can get rid of most sins if we have a witness who stands near us when we are likely to go wrong. The soul should have someone whom it can respect, one by whose authority it may make even its inner shrine more hallowed. Three happy is the man who can make others better, not merely when he is in their company, but even when he is in their thoughts. And happy also is he who can so revere a man as to come and regulate himself by calling him to mind. One who can so revere another will soon be himself worthy of reverence. 10. Choose therefore a Cato, or if Cato seems too severe a model, choose some Laelius, a gentler spirit. Choose a master whose life, conversation, and soul-expressing face have satisfied you. Picture him always to yourself as your protector or your pattern, for we must indeed have someone according to whom we may regulate our characters. You can never straighten that which is crooked unless you use a ruler. Farewell. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Letter well on old age. One. Wherever I turn, I see evidences of my advancing years. I visited lately my country place and protested against the money which was spent on the tumble-down building. My bailiff maintained that the flaws were not due to his own carelessness. He was doing everything possible, but the house was old, and this was the house which grew under my own hands. What has the future in store for me if stones of my own age are already crumbling. Two, I was angry, and I embraced the first opportunity to vent my spleen in the bailiff's presence. It is clear, I cried, 
that these plane trees are neglected. They have no leaves. Their branches are so gnarled and shriveled. The bowls are so rough and unkempt. This would not happen if someone loosened the earth at their feet and watered them. The bailiff swore by my protecting deity that he was doing everything possible and never relaxed his efforts. But those trees were old. Between you and me, I had planted those trees myself. I had seen them in their first leaf. 3. Then I turned to the door and asked, Who is that broken down Dutar? You have done well to place him at the entrance, for he is outward bound. Where did you get him? What pleasure did it give you to take up for burial some other man's dead? But the slave said, Don't you know me, sir? I am Felicio. You used to bring me little images. My father was Philosidus the steward, and I am your pet slave. The man is clean crazy, I remarked. Has my pet slave become a little boy again? But it is quite possible. His teeth are just dropping out. 4. I owe it to my country place that my old age became apparent whithersoever I turn. Let us cherish and love old age. For it is full of pleasure if one knows how to use it. Fruits are most welcome when almost over. Youth is most charming at its close. The last drink delights the toper, the glass which soothes him and puts the finishing touch on his drunkenness. 5. Each pleasure reserves to the end the greatest delights which it contains. Life is most delightful when it is on the downward slope, but has not yet reached the abrupt decline. And I myself believe that the period which stands, so to speak, on the edge of the roof, possesses pleasures of its own, or else the very fact of our not wanting pleasures has taken the place of the pleasures themselves. How comforting it is to have tired out one's appetites and to have done with them. 6. But, you say, it is a nuisance to be looking death in the face. Death, however, should be looked in the face by young and old alike. We are not summoned according to our rating on the censors list. Moreover, no one is so old that it would be improper for him to hope for another day of existence. And one day, mind you, is a stage on life's journey. Our span of life is divided into pots. It consists of large circles enclosing smaller. One circle embraces and bounds the rest. It reaches from birth to the last day of existence. The next circle limits the period our young manhood. The third confines all of childhood in its circumference. Again, there is, in a class by itself, the year. It contains within itself all the divisions of time by the multiplication of which we get the total of life. The month is bounded by a narrower ring. The smallest circle of all is the day. But even a day has its beginning and its ending, its sunrise and its sunset. 7. Hence Heraclitus, whose obscure style gave him his surname, remarked, 
One day is equal to every day. Different persons have interpreted the saying in different ways. Some hold that days are equal in number of hours, and this is true. For if by day we mean 24 hours time, all days must be equal, inasmuch as the night acquires what the day loses. But others maintain that one day is equal to all days through resemblance, because the very longest space of time possesses no element which cannot be found in a single day, namely light and darkness. And even to eternity day makes these alternations more numerous, not different when it is shorter and different again when it is longer. Eight. Hence, every day ought to be regulated as if it closed the series, as if it rounded out and completed our existence. Pacovius, who by long occupancy made Syria his own, used to hold a regular burial sacrifice in his own honor, with wine and the usual funeral feasting, and then would have himself carried from the dining room to his chamber while eunuchs applauded and sang in Greek to a musical accompaniment. He has lived his life. He has lived his life. 9. Thus Pacuvius had himself carried out to burial every day. Let us, however, do from a good motive what he used to do from it a base motive. Let us go to our sleep with joy and gladness. Let us say, I have lived. The course which fortune set for me is finished, and if God is pleased to add another day, we should welcome it with glad hearts. That man is happiest and is secure in his own possession of himself, who can await the morrow without apprehension. When a man has said, I have lived, every morning he arises as he receives a bonus. 10. But now I ought to close my letter. What, you say, shall it come to me without any little offering? Be not afraid. It brings something, nay, more than something, a great deal. For what is more noble than the following saying of which I make this letter the bearer? It is wrong to live under constraint. But no man is constrained to live under constraint. Of course not. On all sides lie many short and simple paths to freedom. And let us thank God that no man can be kept in life. We may spurn the very constraints that hold us. 11. Epicurus, you reply, utter these words. What are you doing with another's property? Any truth, I maintain, is my own property and I shall continue to heap quotations from Epicurus upon you, so that all persons who swear by the words of another and put a value upon the speaker and not upon the thing spoken may understand that the best ideas are common property. Farewell. Letter 13 on Groundless Fears 1. I know that you have plenty of spirit. For even before you began to equip yourself with maxims which were wholesome and potent to overcome obstacles, you were taking pride in your contest with fortune. 
And this is all the more true, now that you have grappled with fortune and tested your powers. For our powers can never inspire in us implicit faith in ourselves, except when many difficulties have confronted us on the side and on that, and have occasionally even come to close quarters with us. It is only in this way that the true spirit can be tested. The spirit that will never consent to come under the jurisdiction of things external to ourselves. Two, this is the touchstone of such a spirit. No prize fighter can go with high spirits into the strife if he has never been beaten black and blue. The only contestant who can confidently enter the list is the man who has seen his own blood, who has felt his teeth rattle beneath his opponent's fist who has been tripped and felt the full force of his adversary's charge, who has been downed in body but not in spirit, one who, as often as he falls, rises again with greater defiance than ever. 3. So then, to keep up my figure, fortune has often in the past got the upper hand of you, and yet you have not surrendered but have leaped up and stood your ground still more eagerly. For man lines gains much strength by being challenged. Nevertheless, if you approve, allow me to offer some additional safeguards by which you may fortify yourself. 4. There are more things, Lucilius, likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. I am not speaking with you in the Stoic strain, but in my milder style. For it is our Stoic fashion to speak of all those things which provoke cries and groans as unimportant and beneath notice. But you and I must drop such great sounding words, although, heaven knows, they are true enough. What I advise you to do is, not to be unhappy before the crisis comes. Since it may be that the dangers before which you paled as if they were threatening you will never come upon you, they certainly have not yet come. 5. Accordingly, some things torment us more than they ought. Some torment us before they ought and some torment us when they ought not to torment us at all. We are in the habit of exaggerating, or imagining, or anticipating sorrow. The first of these three faults may be postponed for the present, because the subject is under discussion and the case is still in court. So to speak, that which I should call trifling, you will maintain to be most serious. For of course I know that some men laugh while being flogged and that others wince at a box on the ear. We shall consider later whether these evils derive their power from their own strength or from our own weakness. 6. Do me the favor, when men surround you and try to talk you into believing that you are unhappy, to consider not what you hear but what you yourself feel and to take counsel with your feelings and question yourself independently, because you know your own affairs better than anyone else does. Ask, 
Is there any reason why these persons should condole with me? Why should they be worried or even fear some infection from me, as if troubles could be transmitted? Is there any evil involved, or is it a matter merely of ill report, rather than an evil? Put the question voluntarily to yourself. Am I tormented without sufficient reason? Am I morose? And do I convert what is not an evil into what is an evil? 7. You may retort with the question, How am I to know whether my sufferings are real or imaginary? Here is the rule for such matters. We are tormented either by things present, or by things to come, or by both. As to things present, the decision is easy. Suppose that your person enjoys freedom and health, and that you do not suffer from any external injury. As to what may happen to it in the future, we shall see later on. Today there is nothing wrong with it. 8. But, you say, something will happen to it. First of all, consider whether your proofs of future trouble are sure. For it is more often the case that we are troubled by our apprehensions, and that we are mocked by that mocker, rumor, which is wont to settle wars, but much more often settles individuals. Yes, my dear Lucilius, we agree too quickly with what people say. We do not put to the test those things which cause our fear. We do not examine into them. We blench and retreat just like soldiers who are forced to abandon their camp because of a dust cloud raised by stampeding cattle, or are thrown into a panic by the spreading of some unauthenticate rumor. 9. And somehow or other it is the idle report that disturbs us most, for truth has its own definite boundaries. But that which arises from uncertainty is delivered over to guesswork and the irresponsible license of a frightened mind. That is why no fear is so ruinous and so uncontrollable as panic fear. For other fears are groundless, but this fear is witless. 10. Let us, then, look carefully into the matter. It is likely that some troubles will befall us, but it is not a present fact. How often has the unexpected happened? How often has the expected never come to pass? And even though it is ordained to be, what does it avail to run out to meet your suffering? You will suffer soon enough when it arrives. So look forward meanwhile to better things. 11. What shall you gain by doing this? Time. There will be many happenings meanwhile which will serve to postpone, or end, or pass on to another person. The trials which are near or even in your very presence. A fire has opened the way to flight. Men have been let down softly by a catastrophe. Sometimes the sword has been checked even at the victim's throat. Men have survived their own executioners. Even bad fortune is fickle. Perhaps it will come, perhaps not. In the meantime, it is not. So look forward to better things.
12. The mind at times fashions for itself false shapes of evil when there are no signs that point to any evil. It twists into the worst construction some word of doubtful meaning. Or it fancies some personal grudge to be more serious than it really is, considering not how angry the enemy is, but to what length he may go if he is angry. But life is not worth living, and there is no limit to our sorrows if we indulge our fears to the greatest possible extent. In this matter, let prudence help you and contend with a resolute spirit even when it is in plain sight. If you cannot do this, cower one weakness with another and temper your fear with hope. There is nothing so certain among these objects of fear that it is not more certain still that things we dread sink into nothing and that things we hope for mock us. 13. Accordingly, weigh carefully your hopes as well as your fears, and whenever all the elements are in doubt, decide in your own favor, believe what you prefer, and if fear wins a majority of the votes, incline in the other direction anyhow, and cease to harass your soul reflecting continually that most mortals, even when no troubles are actually at hand or are certainly to be expected in the future, become excited and disquieted. No one calls a halt on himself when he begins to be urged ahead, nor does he regulate his alarm according to the truth. No one says, the author of the story is a fool, and he who has believed it is a fool as well as he who fabricated it. We let ourselves drift with every breeze. We are frightened at uncertainties, just as if they were certain. We observe no moderation. The slightest thing turns the scales and throws us forthwith into a panic. 14. But I am ashamed either to admonish you sternly or to try to beguile you with such mild remedies. Let another say, perhaps the worst will not happen. You yourself must say, well, what if it does happen? Let us see who wins. Perhaps it happens for my best interests. It may be that such a death will shed credit upon my life. Socrates was ennobled by the hemlock draft. Wrench from Cato's hand his sword, the vindicator of liberty, and you deprive him of the greatest share of his glory. 15. I am exhorting you far too long, since you need reminding rather than exhortation. The path on which I am leading you is not different from that on which your nature led you. You were born to such conduct as I described. Hence there is all the more reason why you should increase and beautify the good that is in you. 16. But now, to close my letter, I have only to stamp the usual seal upon it, in other words, to commit thereto some noble message to be delivered to you. The fool, with all his other faults, has this also, he is always getting ready to live. Reflect, on my esteemed Lucilius, what this saying means, 
and you will see how revolting is the fickleness of men who lay down every day new foundations of life and begin to build up fresh hopes even at the brink of the grave. 17. Look within your own mind for individual instances. You will think of old men who are preparing themselves at that very hour for a political career, or for travel, or for business. And what is baser than getting ready to live when you are already old? I should not name the author of this motto, except that it is somewhat unknown to fame and is not one of those popular sayings of Epicurus which I have allowed myself to praise and to appropriate. Farewell. Letter 14. On the reasons for withdrawing from the world. 1. I confess that we all have an inborn affection for our body. I confess that we are entrusted with its guardianship. I do not maintain that the body is not to be indulged at all. But I maintain that we must not be slaves to it. He will have many masters who makes his body his master, who is over-fearful in its behalf, who judges everything according to the body. 2. We should conduct ourselves not as if we ought to live for the body, but as if we could not live without it. Our too great love for it makes us restless with fears, burdens us with cares, and exposes us to insults. Virtue is held too cheap by the man who counts his body too dear. We should cherish the body with the greatest care. But we should also be prepared when reason, self-respect, and duty demand the sacrifice to deliver it even to the flames. 3. Let us, however, in so far as we can, avoid discomforts as well as dangers, and withdraw to safe ground, by thinking continually how we may repel all objects of fear. If I am not mistaken, there are three main classes of these. We fear want, we fear sickness, and we fear the troubles which result from the violence of the stronger. 4. And of all these, that which shakes us most is the dread which hangs over us from our neighbor's ascendancy. For it is accompanied by great outcry and uproar. But the natural evils which I have mentioned, want and sickness, steal upon us silently with no shock of terror to the eye or to the ear. The other kind of evil comes, so to speak, in the form of a huge parade. Surrounding it is a retinue of swords and fire and chains and a mob of beasts to be let loose upon the disemboweled entrails of men. 5. Picture to yourself under this head the prison, the cross, the rack, the hook, and the stake which they drive straight through a man until it protrudes from his throat. Think of human limbs torn apart by chariots driven in opposite directions, of the terrible shirt smeared and interwoven with inflammable materials, and of all the other contrivances devised by cruelty, in addition to those which I have mentioned. Thank you.
6. It is not surprising, then, if our greatest terror is of such a fate. For it comes in many shapes, and its paraphernalia are terrifying. For just as the torturer accomplishes more in proportion to the number of instruments which he displays, indeed, the spectacle overcomes those who would have patiently withstood the suffering. Similarly, of all the agencies which coerce and master our minds, the most effective are those which can make a display. Those other troubles are of course not less serious. I mean hunger, thirst, ulcers of the stomach, and fever that parches our very bowels. They are, however, secret. They have no bluster and no heralding. But these, like huge arrays of war, prevail by virtue of their display and their equipment. 7. Let us, therefore, see to it that we abstain from giving offense. It is sometimes the people that we ought to fear, or sometimes a body of influential oligarchs in the Senate. If the method of governing the state is such that most of the business is done by that body, and sometimes individuals equipped with power by the people and against the people. It is burdensome to keep the friendship of all such persons. It is enough not to make enemies of them. So the wise man will never provoke the anger of those in power. Nay, he will even turn his course, precisely as he would turn from a storm if he were steering a ship. 8. When you traveled to Sicily, you crossed the straits. The reckless pilot scorned the blustering south wind, the wind which roughens the Sicilian sea and forces it into choppy currents. He sought not the shore on the left, but the strand hard by the place where Charybdis throws the seas into confusion. Your more careful pilot, however, questions those who know the locality as to the tides and the meaning of the cloud. He holds his course far from that region notorious for its swirling waters. Our wise man does the same. He shuns a strong man who may be injurious to him, making a point of not seeming to avoid him, because an important part of one's safety lies in not seeking safety openly. For what one avoids, one condemns. 9. We should therefore look about us and see how we may protect ourselves from the mob. And first of all, we should have no cravings like theirs, for rivalry results in strife. Again, let us possess nothing that can be snatched from us to the great profit of a plotting foe. Let there be as little booty as possible on your person. No one sets out to shed the blood of his fellow men for the sake of bloodshed, at any rate very few. More murderers speculate on their profits than give vent to hatred. You are empty-handed. The highwayman passes you by. Even along an infested road, the poor may travel in peace. 10. Next, we must follow the old adage and avoid three things with special care. Hatred, jealousy, and scorn and wisdom alone can show you how this may be done. 
is hard to observe a me. We must be chary of letting the fear of jealousy lead us into becoming objects of scorn. Lest, when we choose not to stamp others down, we let them think that they can stamp us down. The power to inspire fear has caused many men to be in fear. Let us withdraw ourselves in every way. For it is as harmful to be scorned as to be admired. 11. One must therefore take refuge in philosophy. This pursuit, not only in the eyes of good men, but also in the eyes of those who are even moderately bad, is a sort of protecting emblem for speech-making at the bar or any other pursuit that claims the people's attention wins enemies for a man. But philosophy is peaceful and minds her own business. Men cannot scorn her. She is honored by every profession, even the villest among them. Evil can never grow so strong, and nobility of character can never be so plotted against that the name of philosophy shall cease to be worshipful and sacred. Philosophy itself, however, should be practiced with calmness and moderation. 12. Very well. Then, you retort, do you regard the philosophy of Marcus Cato as moderate? Cato's voice strove to check a civil war. Cato parted the swords of maddened chieftains. When some fell foul of Pompey and others fell foul of Caesar, Cato defied both parties at once. 13. Nevertheless, one may well question whether, in those days, a wise man ought to have taken any part in public affairs and ask, what do you mean, Marcus Cato? It is not now a question of freedom. Long since has freedom gone to rack and ruin. The question is whether it is Caesar or Pompey who controls the state. Why, Cato, should you take sides in that dispute? It is no business of yours. A tyrant is being selected. What does it concern you who conquers? The better man may win, but the winner is bound to be the worse man. I have referred to Cato's final role, but even in previous years, the wise man was not permitted to intervene in such plundering of the state. For what could Cato do but raise his voice and utter unavailing words? At one time, he was hustled by the mob and spat upon and forcibly removed from the forum and marked for exile. At another, he was taken straight to prison from the Senate chamber. 14. However, we shall consider later whether the wise man ought to give his attention to politics. Meanwhile, I beg you to consider those Stoics who, shut out from public life, have withdrawn into privacy for the purpose of improving men's existence and framing laws for the human race without incurring the displeasure of those in power. The wise man will not upset the customs of the people, nor will he invite the attention of the populace by any novel ways of living. 15. What then? Can one who follows out this plan be safe in any case? 
I cannot guarantee you this any more than I can guarantee good health in the case of a man who observes moderation. Although, as a matter of fact, good health results from such moderation. Sometimes a vessel perishes in harbor. But what do you think happens on the open sea? And how much more beset with danger that man would be, who even in his leisure is not secure, if he were busily working at many things? Innocent persons sometimes perish. Who would deny that? But the guilty perish more frequently. A soldier's skill is not at fault if he receives the death blow through his armor. 16. And finally, the wise man regards the reason for all his actions, but not the results. The beginning is in our own power. Fortune decides the issue, but I do not allow her to pass sentence upon myself. You may say, but she can inflict a measure of suffering and of trouble. The highwayman does not pass sentence when he slays. 17. Now you are stretching forth your hand for the daily gift. Golden indeed will be the gift with which I shall load you. And inasmuch as we have mentioned gold, let me tell you how its use and enjoyment may bring you greater pleasure. He who needs riches least, enjoys riches most. Author's name, please, you say. Now, to show you how generous I am, it is my intent to praise the dicta of other schools. The phrase belongs to Epicurus, or Metrodorus, or someone of that particular thinking shop. 18. But what difference does it make who spoke the words? They were uttered for the world. He who craves riches feels fear on their account. No man, however, enjoys a blessing that brings anxiety. He is always trying to add a little more. While he puzzles over increasing his wealth, he forgets how to use it. He collects his accounts. He wears out the pavement in the forum. He turns over his ledger, in short. He ceases to be master and becomes a steward. Farewell. Chill books. Audiobooks with relaxing music, visuals, and subtitles to help you stay engaged. Thank you.